You're listening to Pythagoras' Trousers. Hello, time for this month's Pythagorean Astronomy with me, Chris North. And me, Edward Gomez. Let's start off with uh, a first, in a sense, uh, the first all-female spacewalk took uh, took place this month. So two, two women um, went and did a spacewalk, uh, Christina... Koch and Jessica Mayer, both both NASA astronauts, uh, and yeah, it's taken us a, a while to get this far. Yeah, it's uh, it's quite incredible when you think that this is the first female, and this was attempted previously, but there were no EVA suits f- for women. They were not, only, not enough. I think not also, enough. Yeah. That's right. They were only in a in a, a male medium size, which they didn't fit into, uh, which is. You know, they should have planned ahead, really. They are expensive things, but you have people of different sizes. Uh, it's really quite shocking that... Uh, so this this builds upon the the first woman or first women to, to do uh, a spacewalk back in the mid-80s. Uh, and it's taken such a long time for there to be an all-female roster on, on a spacewalk. Yeah, it's 30 years mm. or more. I mean, in, in some senses, this is a, uh, yeah, it's, it's taken us 30 years to, to get this far. That's ridiculous. But also, it will be nice to live in a world where this wasn't a new story. Yeah, right. absolutely. Um, uh, it's, 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 yeah, as you say, it's, it's, it's quite uh, shocking that it's, it's, it is so, so noteworthy. Um, so the, the spacewalk itself was a, over seven hours long, um, replacing some, some power units and, uh, and so on, installing some systems on the, on ESA's Columbus module, ready for, for something that's coming uh, next year. There have been something like over 200 spacewalks of the space station. They're so important for maintaining the thing, because you, you know you can't just lean out the window and tweak the window. <laughs> yeah, that's right. Yeah. And, and they take so long, because although it's something which seems so trivial as just pr- replacing a battery, it's it takes so long, because it takes an incredible amount of time to get out, to get suited, to get out through the uh, the airlocks, to then very, very carefully uh, check your position and tether. And, uh, and when, you, when you think of Hollywood, you know, spacewalks are, are fairly fast things. These are, these are really not. These are very careful motions because uh, you want to make sure that you're latched to the space station. You want to make sure that uh, you don't drop any of the equipment uh, because not only is it really expensive, it's really annoying because very often you only have, uh, for specialist equipment, you only have a, one spare. And uh, it also contributes to space junk. You know, that if you drop a spanner, it could end up puncturing one of the solar panels of the space station. Yeah, you've got a spanner moving at 25,000 kilometres an hour or something, which yeah. does, does a lot of damage. So, yeah, they're, they're, they're critical. Um, there are some plans uh, for the future. So... I remember the, the the spacewalks to go and repair the last spacewalk to go and repair the Hubble Space Telescope back in two thousand and nine was it something about a decade ago something like that maybe twenty thirteen I forget uh, where they were doing things where bits instruments that weren't designed to be repaired so they were having to use screwdrivers to take out something like two hundred little screws from a panel they've got some coming up on the space station which are for for a, a particle detector called the Alpha Magnetic Spectrometer. Um, which is, is, is wasn't designed to be repaired. So you've got this thing that was designed to be operated by people or to be assembled by people in a lab on the ground, so without spacesuits on, probably with you know thin gloves, and you suddenly got these really bulky inflated spacesuits using you know a, a set of screwdrivers that you really don't want to drop, 
or hex heads, whatever they are that they're, they're using spanners and so on, on something that you then possibly have to pull bits out of that are not designed to have spacesuit-sized gloves go into them. It's um, uh, it's going to take five spacewalks to do that, and given each one's a day long, that's a huge amount of effort. Yeah, but the thing is, uh, the reason for doing that is that it's much cheaper to do that than to send up a new one. And uh, And if you've got a piece of equipment that you've had in space it's undergone a huge amount of in-space testing. You know, it has worked up until that point. And if it's something which has been in service for years, then actually replacing it, um, you, you'd be tempted to replace it with something that doesn't do exactly the same thing. It would, do, it would solve a different question or it would uh, perform a different experiment. Uh, and actually, the things... Uh, the Hubble Space Telescope is a prime example. It's it's outlived its operational lifetime by many many times. My um, by I think it was originally a ten year mission, and now it's it's been up there for which thirty, 30 years, years next year. Yeah, um, I remember in school uh, I was in I was in year three, uh, and I did a project on the Hubble Space Telescope uh, when it launched. Uh, in school, I've, I've, in fact, I found it in my parents' house uh, <laughs> last year, so I shall have to look that out for the thirtieth anniversary. Anyway, we digress slightly from yeah. uh, from spacewalks and the and the space station. Um, so lots of stuff going on uh, there with the with the spacewalks and and, and many more to come, and uh, yeah, many more spacewalks uh, featuring featuring women that will not be um, not be a news news item in the future, which would be a a good situation uh, to be in. Okay, moving uh, slightly further afield, we've got a, a visitor coming in from afar, this comet Borisov, uh, this interstellar visitor. Um, we've had a few observations uh, taken of it by particularly the Hubble Space Telescope, uh, just, just mentioned. Um, uh, it, uh, yeah, the results are, um, well, boring. boring. Yeah, <laughs> the results are that the comet looks like a comet from our own solar system, uh, which is in some senses reassuring mm. uh, because if this comet looked totally different to comets that we see in our own solar system then that might pose very sticky problems for how you form comets and really you want to have uh, comets formed in our solar system as being bog standard mm. uh, because you don't really we assume that our solar system is there is nothing special about uh, our solar system that the way that the planets form the the the, the sun uh, the comets, uh, the asteroids, everything that makes up our solar system is actually typical of what you would see out in the universe uh, for things that are of a, a similar age. And, uh, and that is incredibly reassuring because then that means that if it's uh, uh, 2i Borisov, so the, the i is standing for inst- interstellar, um, and 2 being the second example... Mm-hmm. Uh, you might remember that Oumuamua was the, the first, uh, which was an asteroid, an interstellar asteroid. Uh, so these these uh, these things, actually, that they are similar to ones that we have in our solar system, could be a good thing for life. Mm. Uh, if our solar system isn't anything special and we have life, and we have a planet that's full of life, then other solar systems could have the right conditions to form life too. Now, Borisov was found by an amateur astronomer finding a, you know, a point moving that shouldn't have been there in, in his observations. Um, and that's how a lot of things in the, the solar system are discovered. In fact, we've found a bunch more um, going around Saturn. So uh, the new moons 
uh, going around the planet Saturn, now puts it in lead in, in the lead in the solar system for having the most moons. So now 82 moons, yeah, 82 that's, satellites. There's three more than Jupiter. Yeah, just uh, I think there were another few found around Jupiter uh, a, a year or so ago. Um, so these 20 moons are all really small, <laughs> three miles across or thereabouts. Um, so they're, they're really hard to see. Um, and that's one of the things. That they're also a long way out, and they're moving relatively slowly. So that, that makes them harder to, to track um, as well. Uh, and some of them are moving, uh, are moving backwards, uh, something called retrograde moons. Now, that tells us that it, when Saturn formed, when the planet Saturn formed, it had a disk of stuff around it. And if the moons had formed in that disk or had formed when that disk was there, when they were passing through, their orbit would have, have, have been tweaked, so they were all then in the same Going all, all going in the same direction, roughly. So the fact that these are going in different directions says that they formed, or possibly were captured, a long time after that had happened. So they're, they're late comments to the, to, to the Saturn system. Um, they have various, uh, various names. We have the Norse group, um, is this, this retrograde group, this group going backwards. Um, uh, a couple that are in a, a group going in, the, in sort of the right direction called the Inuit group. Uh, and then uh, there's another group uh, called the uh, Gaelic group as well. Um, and, and these groups, which are just they're old names where they've been around for a long time, actually lead to the names of what these satellites might be. Uh, and that's something where anyone can get involved. Yeah, there's a, a competition by uh, Carnegie Science to, to name these new moons and... Uh, there was a, a similar competition uh, run by the astronomical, the International Astronomical Union, and uh, you can view names uh, of other solar system objects there. But this competition is running until the start of December, the 6th of December this year, and uh, you can just tweet your suggestion at Saturn Lunacy uh, <laughs> and, uh, and say why, and uh, it will be a contender. So, if it, if depending on which moon you want, it's got to be a, it's got to be a name that's associated with Norse mythology, Inuit mythology, or uh, Gaelic mythology, uh, and um, yeah, have fun picking names. Moving further afield, um, right into the centre of our galaxy, uh, we've had our, our, the, the black hole in the centre, which is a couple of million times the mass of our sun. Um, it has a, a cloud of stuff going around it that, that generally now and again emits you know, X-rays and radio waves and, and stuff as the material get, gets heated and, and, and energised. Um, but there's some evidence now that um, a few million years ago it, um, it, it had a massive flare. It belched essentially and, and set jets of material out. So this is a, uh, a new result from looking at, um, well, not the black hole itself, but much more distant material. Yeah, so this is, this is a glow that was noticed back in 1996 that people have been trying to explain. And uh, it's, uh, it's, it's from studying something called the Magellanic Stream. And if you're, uh, if you're a keen amateur astronomer, particularly if you've been or live in the Southern Hemisphere, you'll know all about the Magellanic Clouds, two small galaxies that are the Milky Way's companions. Uh, and these are, these are irregular galaxies. The Magellanic Stream is, is, a, is a cloud or a, a stream of, of high-velocity gas uh, that uh, was, was noted in the 60s and 70s. And its extent is most of the southern, uh, southern hemisphere, uh, but you can only see it in radio. Uh, 
and so that's why it's uh, it was a, a difficult thing to find and wasn't discovered until the 60s and 70s um, and this strange glow was noticed here uh, and people have recently been able to uh, work backwards from the glow and work out uh, from how it's cooled down when it was when the glow was first started and and what partly what happened so they identified that it's the it, the the origin of the glow was something going on right around the black hole in the center of our galaxy called Sagittarius A star and that it must have happened about three and a half million years ago uh, so it would have been um, potentially quite a bright light in the sky, I guess. All these jets of material coming from the galaxy it would have been quite a, a sight to behold. So you know. yeah, and actually, it, it's it was such a bright and hot event that it's very difficult to know what effect it would have had on the development of the early Earth as well, because there was obviously there was life and there was uh, proto humans. It was uh, um, the the ancestors of um, Homo sapiens were walking around the Earth at that time, and so. What effect it had on them, it's impossible to say, really. We see these things in other galaxies, and they make some of the most impressive pictures of radio galaxies, these massive radio jets. So it is fascinating to think that, you know, a few million years ago, our own galaxy looked looked like that. Um, yeah. And particularly as we always think of our galaxies being relatively boring and stable. Yeah. But, but relatively recently in its own history, it had one of these massive belches. Yeah, three, three million years is not much compared with... Well, it's not much. It's it's a tiny amount compared with just the evolution of life on Earth, let alone um, the evolution of the universe as a whole. So it's a blink of an eye in astronomical senses. Now, speaking of black holes, one of the things, one of the experiments we're heavily involved in here in Cardiff is the LIGO detector, or the LIGO experiment. Twin gravitational wave detectors joined by the Virgo detector a few years ago, looking for the collision of black holes and neutron stars out in the cosmos. Well, those detectors have been running for six months in their third observing run, called O3, uh, and they're currently on a brief hiatus. Uh, I took advantage of a visit to here in Cardiff by uh, Professor Jess McIver from the University of British Columbia, and also our own Dr Duncan MacLeod, uh, based here in Cardiff. And I began by asking Jess to remind us uh, what LIGO and Virgo are trying to detect with these gravitational waves. We do expect from general relativity that... Any asymmetric acceleration of matter is going to produce this stretching and squeezing of space-time, these ripples in space-time that we think of as uh, gravitational waves. Um, so if you have something that's very, very massive and moving very, very quickly that's asymmetric, like a pair of black holes, for example, or neutron stars, um, then the... Uh, collision of these, this uh, slow and then increasingly <laughs> rapid in spiral and then um, collision of these massive objects will produce, um, well, relative to the scale of other sources, enormous gravitational waves. In terms of energy, it's, it's really remarkable. So for the very first detection that we had uh, back in uh, 2015, um, we had two roughly 30 solar mass black holes, so about 30 times the mass of our own sun, um, collide about 1.4 billion years before <laughs> the signal passed the Earth and registered in the two advanced LIGO detectors. Um, but during that collision, that released about three solar masses worth of energy. So in, the, in a flash, in less than a second, it's uh, briefly in a luminosity outshone all the stars and galaxies in the universe 
and released a three times the amount of energy that our own sun will in its entire lifetime. But all that was in gravitational waves. There wasn't That's a right. flicker of light at all. That's right. Um, or at least certainly not that we saw and it wasn't, wasn't predicted to be. Um, now, as you say, it's an incredibly violent event, the most violent or the most energetic event we've ever witnessed. Um, and, and yet uh, the effect here on Earth was absolutely minuscule. Yes. So what kind of size of event are we, we looking at here on Earth? Right. So the space-time is continually stretching and squeezing all the time in response to changes in the way that matter is distributed, but the effect is so tiny. So for, for this incredibly violent event, it produced an effect, this stretching and squeezing of the order of about 10,000 times smaller than the width of a proton. So it'd be the LIGO and Virgo detectors are sensing these very, very small changes in distance. So the relative change in distance between two perpendicular arms. Um, that's equivalent to sensing a change in about the width of a human hair from here to the nearest star. It's really a remarkably small um, change that we're that we're capable of sensing. That's a tiny change caused by the, the the stretching and squeezing of space, but there's there's a number of other things that can can give the same effect. Um, what other sorts of things is LIGO and Virgo sensitive to? Oh yes, the the terrestrial sources. Yeah. These, um, Earth-based noise sources. We see planes, we see trains, <laughs> we see um, truck motion. There are a lot of things that can produce um, either displacements in the mirrors themselves or propagate into the signal in other ways. So our data is all electronically registered and recorded, so we often get electromagnetic couplings as well. So flashes of lightning or um, tiny changes in the local um, magnetic fields could also register and couple into the data. Uh, and, and Duncan, when we presumably a lot of that can now be ruled out automatically, can it? Or, or is that still a case of people going through and identifying things? A bit of both. So we try and do as much of this automatically because computers are much faster at this than humans. Mm. It goes all the way from extremely simple, but very effective, to extremely complicated, but equally effective. The most important thing that allows us to rule out noise is a requirement that we place on ourselves that we need to see the same gravitational wave signal in more than one detector at the same time. And that's because the detectors are so far apart on the Earth that the same plane is not going to be passing overhead both at the same time. So about 3,000 kilometres apart. For the they're two LIGO detectors, yeah. yes. It's extremely unlikely, regardless of the noise source, that you would end up with the same noise source affecting two different detectors at the same time. So that uh, allows us to cut out a huge amount of the noise without really trying. Uh, but then we look at the different signals that we record in our, in our detector... I mean, other than this main gravitational wave strain measurement, we're recording literally hundreds of thousands of other signals. These are seismometers and magnetometers, uh, which wouldn't register gravitational wave signals. So if we see a signal there and a signal in our gravitational wave data output at the same time, then it's likely some coupling from the environment or some noise from the detector somewhere. 
And that, so that could be that if, you know, if a tree falls down next to one detector at the same time as a truck goes past the other detector, you get two events at the same time, but you can, you can say, but look, we saw, we saw things shake, so we, we can rule it out. Yes, but also for the searches for these merging black holes and neutron stars, general relativity gives us such a precise uh, estimate of the gravitational wave signal, what it looks like in our detector that we can uh, compare that with the data we have. And for almost all of our noise sources, they don't look like that. A truck driving past doesn't look like a gravitational wave signal. So while it causes noise, we can use these, uh, these template waveforms, these you know, signal models, to allow us to eliminate the noise uh, very effectively. And if we do that at multiple detectors, then that allows us to cut down the noise background a lot. But the automated uh, data quality analysis is, no, is by no means complete. So we still require a huge human effort. But human eye is so good at identifying these, these, these correlations just in images uh, that this human effort pays off every time. What's the normal delay between something going off and it being made public? So in principle, astronomers around the world can go and try and see if they saw something... Well, there, there are a few steps for the open public alert that something has registered in the data and it's been identified by the searches that Duncan was describing. The astronomers and Twitter and everyone will get that alert all at the same time. So right. I'll get a buzz on my phone at the same time as any astronomer that's registered and to, to look at these alerts. And then when I get that signal, then yes, the team assembles. <laughs> And we have a, a first pass look at the data quality to see if we can rule the signal out or if there's something in the data that might be affecting our ability to produce an accurate sky map. So that's another very important step and one that we had to take for the first binary neutron star merger signal. We had to cut a glitch, a big giant glitch out of the data in order to resolve where on the sky that the signal was accurately. Mm -hmm. So that can take... Less than an hour. We, okay. um, uh, if it's a straightforward <laughs> thing to do. So um, for that example, for the, the binary neutron star detection in 2017, there was a very, very short glitch. It was very loud, but it was, it was uh, you know, maybe a few milliseconds. So it was straightforward to kind of surgically snip that portion of the data out mm -hmm. and then recompute the sky map pretty quickly. Um, if it's a more complicated, so for example like the rumbling of a train sometimes has these very highly nonlinear um, effects where you can get um, this noise in the data that's that's seconds long and at a, a whole bunch of different frequencies. And it's hard, it's much harder to extract that from the data without um, chipping away at your signal in a way that would bias the, the answer. I guess it's a bit like audio editing, right? So he says, looking at the microphone in front of him, <laughs> that if, if there's a pop on the mic or if someone you know, flicks the table and you, and, mm -hmm. and you hear the pop, that's straightforward enough to, to snip out. And exactly. the worst case is you lose a fraction of a word. Mm -hmm. um, if there's a low rumbling of aircon or something, you can normally filter that out in, in, in some way or a high-pitched whine from a, you know, a light fitting or something. You can filter that out uh, as well. But if there's, you know other voices or there's trucks going past or, or something, then that is much harder to, to get rid exactly of. That's exactly right. That's yeah. exactly right. So we can use these powerful techniques to exclude anything that doesn't look like what we expect our signal to look like. 
and accepts if we're uh, having this you know, eyes wide open approach where we're looking for something that behaves like a gravitational wave with no other restriction, then it's it's really a lot harder to exactly as you said distinguish it from other voices in the room. That's not the end of the story. So, so Duncan, the analysis of these things doesn't doesn't just take you know minutes or hours. The analysis of these things takes quite considerably longer in in full. Yes. It's kind of self-explanatory that if you look longer at the data, chances are you're going to get a better estimate of, of you're, you're going to understand what you're looking at more. So as Jess described, we, we put out these automatic public alerts and we put those out as quickly as we can. And the things that we, the, we put out a small amount of information there that says, uh, this is the time, this is the detectors and uh, this is the kind of uh, event that we think, so whether it was a binary neutron star or a binary black hole, and then we put out a sky map. That's the, the, the important bit of information we put out. And we, we generate the first sky map as quickly as we can to get something, because it's more important to have something, even if it's not particularly precise, than nothing at all. Mm-hmm. This allows our... Uh, partner observatories or any interested uh, astronomer to point their telescope in the right place. The first sky map comes out and it will typically have a very large area, relatively. Uh, So as I say, it's not very precise, but it gives them something to look at. So once that's done, we then go back in and we take a much deeper dive into the data uh, to try and generate another sky map that is much more precise. But in order to get the precision, we have to do a lot more computing, and it just takes longer. Typically, on the order of an hour or so after this initial alert, we'll put out uh, an extra alert with a new sky map that is has used a lot more time and a lot more computing, but should be a lot more precise. And ideally, that new sky map will be just a smaller area inside of the original sky map. So people who've pointed their telescopes, they're not pointing in the wrong direction. They might just have to make a small adjustment. Uh, so they're already looking in the right place. We're just giving them some more information. Anytime we get more information that allows us to make a more precise estimate of the timing or the sky localization or even just the type of event we think it is, we'll put that out as soon as we're confident that the information is, is correct to the best of our knowledge. And at the same time, the detector characterization groups from LIGO and Virgo are continuously looking at the data to see if there's any reason that we should doubt our analysis. Uh, and if we find something in there that gives us strong belief that this is a noise signal rather than an astrophysical signal, then we'll put out another alert as soon as we think that that statement is, is true and that we can stand behind it. So that's to say, actually, that no, forget it. Ignore, yeah, ignore and, that one, sorry. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, technically, that's called a retraction. So we, we put out an, another notice that says, we now believe that this is not an astrophysical signal for this reason or that reason. And that's okay. The astronomers that we talk to would much rather have the chance of seeing something very, very quickly under the knowledge that every now and again one of these things is is going to be caused by noise. And that's just, you know, the fact that our detectors are so sensitive. Every now and again, there's going to be some tiny bit of noise that looks like a signal, and they're happy with that to happen, you know, once every now and again. 
And that's because minutes or certainly hours are very, very important for finding these things. If you're looking for a, a counterpart in the sky, you need to get to it as quickly as possible. So that's why we do this kind of tiered approach where we, we just put out information essentially as soon as we have it and as soon as we as a collaboration or a group of collaborations are happy to defend the statements. As soon as we have that confidence, we'll release it uh, as quickly as we can. And this, this open data, this open alerts policy is, is, is something that's new for, for 03, the third observing run. And so, Jess, we've had, I think, in the first six months, uh, something like 30 candidate events, most of which are fairly certain. There have been a few that have been retracted, that have said, that, you know, sorry, they weren't real um, when, when they've been reanalyzed. Um, so in the first six months, 30, that, that's about um, one a week, although just over one a week on average. That's only going to get busier right as in the the second half of the run uh, the potentially more events and then future runs even more so what's the what's the plan for dealing with this in the future so everything that you said is (laughs) (laughs) is true um so uh duncan described it really nicely when he said that we uh, we do both automation and also humans looking at the data so what we're going to need to do as we have more and more events um, is we're going to need to automate that process as much as we can. So it's it's not even just whether or not we doubt that it the candidate event may be real or due to noise, but also what can we do about it quickly and automatically. And that's the step that I think we are really going to push on going forward is if there is some artifact in the data, how do we cut it out? How do we get rid of it? automatically and then reprocess our analysis and give the most accurate up-to-date information that we can and Duncan on that sort of the moving from people looking at to, to automated stuff looking at it you're working on a, a project that's getting not just the the LIGO and Virgo teams to look at this but anyone can go and help with this process the gravity spy project which is taking some of those unwanted sort of those noise sources to try and better understand them. So what can people do with Gravity Spy to get to get involved in this? They, the, the general public, can do basically exactly what we on the inside do. The aim of Gravity Spy is to get human beings who are you know, naturally so good at detecting uh, differences in images and you know, putting images into categories, is presenting a, a view where it allows anyone in the public to look at these events, tell us oh, this event is in this particular category, category A. And they're all given, uh, you know, more or less sensible names, so they have a bit more descriptive than just category A and category B. But it, it, it gives us in the LIGO Virgo collaborations a very rich set of knowledge that says a human being, who we almost trust implicitly because human beings are really good at this, have said this image, so this noise event, is a member of this category. And that allows us to train machine learning algorithms and even just other people in the LIGO Virgo collaboration that things that look like this are typically from this noise source. Because we've had this huge uh, database of categorizations from Gravity Spy, we can then very confidently say, oh, this event is actually a noise source in this category or maybe this category. Or we can say, and what we hope to say is, no, this event doesn't look like any of these noise sources at all it looks like this gravitational wave source. Yeah. So you might even detect something... Uh, yes, so we, we don't remove signals. And there is a yeah, there is a small but definitely non-zero chance that you could be the first person to detect this gravitational wave signal because the sheer quantity of data that we have 
Uh, and because human beings are so good at making this detection by eye, this categorization, it could easily be that we our automated analysis has missed something or has has uh, you know didn't run at that time for some absurd reason. And you could be the first person to go and make this detection of a new gravitational wave signal that we didn't notice the first time. So people can get involved in the uh, the all this this noise characterization uh, as well. All detectors have been offline for the month of October for for little little tweaks. Bit of a spring clean. What kind of things have been have been changing in in the detectors this this, this month? Well, I think the the changes that I'm most looking forward to seeing what the effect is after um, after the commissioners at the sites have been working on them are uh, the installation of some. Well, I guess we could say a light absorption. Yeah. Yes, <laughs> I'm gonna agree with Duncan's characterization that citizen scientists. Citizen scientists getting involved with Gravity Spy is such a tremendous help with automating our noise analysis. But I'm going to disagree with his characterization of um, our categories all having sensible names. <laughs> that is I said more or less sensible. <laughs> I think that's decidedly untrue in the best possible way. We have some very whimsical names. One of them, I don't know that this is actually public on Gravity Spy, but internally one of them is known as Fringy the Sea Monster. Right. Yes. So this, if you if you take one of these spectrograms, which you can check out on Gravity Spy, this is a, a pattern that you see for light scattering. So this is some small fraction of the beam that's circulating in the detector arms gets reflected um, away from the main beam and then it's some small fraction of that light is reflected off of some shiny surface that's moving and that light gets modulated a little bit with that motion and then some fraction of that light couples back into the main beam and you see this beat note pattern if you've ever played an instrument and you're trying to to tune with someone else it's that that whoop 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 that beat that you hear Mm. right so um that can make some really funny patterns in the data that look like Sort of the Loch Ness monster, this <laughs> serpentine kind Excellent. of in and out of the data. Yes. Um, so this light scattering, the the fringes have been particularly bad. Pushing down the noise floor sometimes uncovers some of this noise behavior that can trick our analyses into thinking that there are real signals there. So before they were just swamped by other stuff, essentially. Yeah. Yes, yeah. <laughs> yeah. more or less. Yeah. But um, so we're we're installing a black glass shroud that should help absorb some of the stray light, and will hopefully improve that quite a lot, uh, particularly for the Livingston detector that's down in Louisiana. So I am crossing my fingers that that works really well. Mm-hmm. Um, so something else that we're thinking about is these um, tiny little points on the surface of the optics that are uh, sort of defects in in the coating, the coating that reflects a lot of the the light that's circulating in the arms. And they tend to absorb a lot of light, and this can cause um, some... Essentially, it limits our sensitivity. So what they're doing is they're going to try to go in and clean the absorbers off of the mirror surface, and I really hope that that works, because we might be able to get... uh, more sensitivity for the remainder of the run. So those are the the two things that I'm looking forward to seeing what the outcome is by the time we turn the detectors back on and start taking data again in November. Uh, that that clean is a high pressure job. I mean, these these are basically <laughs> the most perfect mirrors ever made. I mean, there's something like a quarter of a million 
dollars a go or something. They're, they're hugely expensive, right? That's so true. A, a, don't drop them. <laughs> but <laughs> but B, be very careful with the surface. Don't just go and have a little, you know, lint-free cloth and give it a wipe, right? This is much more um, sophisticated cleaning than, uh, than anything like that. Uh, so, so a couple of little things to, to, to improve for the second half of the run that's going to run for another six months. We're also looking forward to being joined by a fourth detector. That's right. So uh, a Japanese detector, Kagura, based in, based in Japan, is, is uh, fingers crossed, coming online this year. So this counts in... At the in, end in, of the year, yeah. yeah. Um, so that's that's doing what LIGO and Virgo were doing a few years ago, so just getting going. So it's unlikely to, you know, it, well, it's certainly not going to compete with LIGO and Virgo, but... It'll it'll add something to the to the data, I guess. Certainly for the the bright events, perhaps, or is it is it still below that at the moment? It may well do. Um, so we're we're hoping that they'll join at a, a sensitivity that could very well help us, for example, localize a sky map. Um, but it's it's really unclear what's going to happen. So they've got some tough choices to make in terms of you know what power level they want to they want mm. to use. Um, they've got some uh, engineering challenges being under a mountain that mm. Lago and Virgo don't have to deal with. So it's, yeah, we'll see. We're mm. all rooting for them, and uh, we, we all really hope that they'll come online with a sensitivity that'll um, really add a lot to mm. our, our localization. Whatever happens, it's a victory when they join the run, and I, I expect they will do. It's important to remember that when we're doing these multi-detector analyses, where we require signals in multiple detectors at the same time, that adding a new detector, regardless of how sensitive it is or not, can only ever be a good thing. Yeah. It gives us more information. Because the noises are completely uncorrelated, adding a new detector, it, it doesn't really take anything away, but it gives us this, you know, perhaps small, but definitely extra possibility of improving the sky localization or just seeing something new and slightly different that we haven't seen before. So how, just having any other detector, and especially having one on the other side of the, the planet from definitely from LIGO, just it will only ever help us. And they're going to start with a lower sensitivity. But if if we take anything from the experience of of building, especially advanced LIGO and advanced Virgo, the sensitivity is going to improve very rapidly, and they can build on the use the experience from LIGO and Virgo to go even more rapidly than we did. So it's they're going to come on with a low sensitivity, but it's very quickly going to become a very useful detector. And they've got some new technologies, some different uh, configurations that mean that they're going to be sensitive in a slightly different way than LIGO and Virgo. So they're going to add something new. They're going to have uh, the ability to see slightly different types of sources, or they're going to see more of some source compared to others. So it's only ever going to be a good thing. And getting them online and uh, you know part of the gang, as it were, as quickly as possible just means that everyone takes a big step forward. LIGO, Virgo and Kagra, when it comes online, are going are gonna to run until you know, middle of next year, uh, some, sometime, spring next year. Um, and then all the detectors go offline for a fairly long period, a, a year or more, to, to do some more serious upgrades. What, roughly what kind of things are we talking about for before 04, the fourth observing run? One of the things that I find very exciting is that the NSF in the US has approved funding for an upgrade to the advanced LIGO detectors, which the UK and Australia have also contributed to. Um, and in the EU, Advanced Virgo is going to undergo a, a similar improvement. Um, so a lot of the construction for this is going to happen in this next commissioning break. So um, 
one of the main features will be building a new cavity that's going to house this quantum squeezing. <laughs> so we're going to be squeezing in a different frequency range, a lower frequency range that's enabled by um, essentially busting a hole in the existing wall of the building right. and building a new 300 meter long cavity. So given that trucks driving past and flames, planes <laughs> flying overhead interrupt the data, you definitely don't want to do that when it's when it's running. I <laughs> yes, guess. Yeah. that's exactly Pneumatic right. drills make a, a mess. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So the construction for that is going to be happening in this upcoming year, so spring 2020 to 2021. And, and so, I mean, this, this quantum squeezing is just a, exploiting quantum mechanics to try and get the most out of the data. It's a quite in-depth in-depth thing anyone any familiar familiar with heisenberg uncertainty principle it's exploiting that in exactly. a um in a way to get the most out of the uh, out of the data so there's an awful lot to come uh, in the next few months and then uh you know a year or so's break and then in the future we've got many many more detectors i know there are plan plans for for future detectors and future generations uh detectors but we can cover them uh another time uh, i guess uh so jess duncan thanks very much thank you thank you so an awful lot going on with gravitational waves. Uh, the discovery of black hole mergers and the detection of gravitational waves was awarded the Nobel Prize a couple of years ago. We were lucky enough to have Kip Thorne, one of those winners here, just uh, back in uh, October, early this month. Look at our Twitter account and our webpage, uh, and you might be able to find a, a link to the video of that talk. That's it for this month. Don't forget, you can find past episodes and subscribe to the podcast at pythagastro.uk. Until next month, goodbye. <laughs> You've been listening to Pythagorean Astronomy, an extended version of this month's Astronomy Roundup from Pythagoras' Trousers, a weekly science and technology radio show presented by me, Rhys Phillips. You can catch up on full episodes of Pythagoras' Trousers, subscribe to our podcast and get in touch by going to www.pythagoras-trousers.radio.fm.